Welcome to the Player Layer Podcast, where we talk about board games and game design. I'm your host, Ivan Alexiev, and I'm very excited to present today's guest, Shem Phillips. He is the founder of Garfield Games with over 13 years of experience in the industry as a board game designer, developer, and publisher. The Player Layer Patreon page is now running. There you can find the video of this podcast. As a reward, you will also receive digital assets made by Veselin Alexiev, early access to podcasts, as well as the power to vote on future guests who you'll want to hear on the podcast. You'll find a link in the description. Thanks for your support. Hi, I'm here with Shem Phillips today from New Zealand, and many of you know him for the North Sea Trilogy, as well as the uh, Western Kingdom Trilogy, and for Garfield Games. First of all, I want to congratulate you, Shem. You, you recently just got an award, uh, Golden Geek Runner-Up uh, Game of the Year Award, which is really cool. And your last game, Viscounts, was successfully funded just a couple of weeks ago. Uh, how yeah, are you doing? Thank you. <laughs> yeah, good. Doing very well, thanks. One thing I want to ask you is you've got like a lot of experience behind you. I want to ask you, how, how, how do you feel it's different working by yourself rather than working uh, with other people? Because you've, you've had many uh, cooperative projects with uh, like Sam, Sam McDonald, and you've also had a lot of projects where you were the main designer. Um, so I actually started out just on my own. Um, so I think the first would have been 10 years or so I was designing just by myself. Um, mainly because there wasn't really much of a design community in New Zealand, so that was like my only choice. Um, but I think I I naturally tend to do things on my own. I'm that kind of guy that tries to do everything he can. Um, but Sam kind of came on board at a point where I think I was I was getting more involved in the publishing side than the design side. So he came in at the really right time to really start to carry all of that that early development, early design stages of the games. Um, so now I'm just, I would, I don't think I'd really like to design games by myself much anymore at all because it's just, it's not as fun maybe. It's quite fun just bouncing back ideas off people. Um, yeah, it's, I don't know, it's it's an interesting one. It has to be, I think it has to be someone you work well with um, for it to, to really uh, do well and to be fun because um, me and Sam are just good mates and we just love like, chucking ideas out there and see what single sticks. Uh, I definitely feel the same way because I, I design, I've designed games with my brother and it's it's a really cool relationship when you can actually, you have someone who wants to test the game a lot of the time. Yeah, yeah. And <laughs> that's really nice. And it's also nice to, uh, you know, reach decisions where you both agree on them. And sometimes you'll find that the other person, at least I, I find a lot of times, that the other person will give you some ideas wh wh which you haven't thought about at all. How far along was Sam when you first uh, saw his project of Ar Architect? Um, so, yeah, he, he just told me one day that he had had some idea for a game. Um, I think he briefly described it to me, uh, and I, I couldn't recall any other game that had this what's now kind of coined as worker investment, where you're slowly sewing workers onto, onto a spot for more reward. Um, and then he he just said, hey, do you want to come along to my flat 
and play the game with some friends um, just to see if you like it, see what you think of it. Not because he wanted me to sign the game, just because he knew I liked, I did games and he wanted to get my opinion. Um, at that stage, it was just basically written by hand on a whiteboard. Um, he was using counters from uh, Cosmic Encounter and a few resources from my old prototypes and just hand-drawn cards. It was very rough. Um, but the, the core mechanism of the kind of sewing workers and then capturing workers put them in prison, was all, that was all there. Um, so it was, yeah, it was very early stages. And I, I liked it straight away. I liked the, the what he had. Um, but it took us about a month or two to really talk it through and then finally decide on, like, what's, what will the actual theme be? I tried to twist it into different things that would work with what I was thinking for my West Kingdom series. Um, but then we just kind of put it right back to what he what he originally envisioned for the game, which was this kind of medieval building a city type, very generic theme, but it just worked. Um, so I came on board and just basically we finished the design together, added in things like marble and clay and virtue, apprentices, all the extra kind of stuff that we designed together. So he, he basically showed me a very, very early concept, um, but which I wouldn't usually like uh, take on board because, you know, it's just, it's not much work was done, but um, knowing him as a friend, it's like, this could be a fun project to work together. So Yeah. And how, how do you usually work with prototypes? Because we, we usually have a lot of prototypes early on. That's just the way that we, we do things. And it, it helps that, like, my, my brother is, he's an architect, but he, he does a lot of, uh, like, Photoshop work and stuff like that. So we, we, we actually try and get the prototypes to look kind of good, so we want to play them more. Do you, do you care at all about looks or uh, yeah. when you're still earlier on? Or do you have as many prototypes? Because we, sometimes we go, like, a prototype a week <laughs> in our uh, design. Yeah, in the early stages, the the look will change like dramatically. Like I think Viscount started out with like three or four different, like completely different type of maps where you were moving around. Um, but I often jump in quite early with graphic design. So as soon as we've got like some kind of a concept going, I want to visualize how it's going to look on the table. Um, and I enjoy doing that. So I, I do graphic design quite early um, and often do, almost black and white type prototypes where they're just like line work and a few icons on, on white paper. Um, but Sam, he still still uses the whiteboard because it's fast. Um, so he will often do a very rough first prototype. And then when we see some concepts working, I'll take that and then develop a, a very basic um, digital format, digital form of that prototype. But yeah, they, they, did, they change weekly as well in the first few months for us. Mm -hmm. And when did you guys, because I know your first few games didn't have a solo mode. Uh, how do you work on like having solo in games? Yeah, the first one I did was for Explorers. Um, I think when I designed that one, that's when I became aware of solo gaming, I guess. Um, before that, it never really, maybe didn't cross my mind, I'm not sure. Um, and then after that was, was Architects. So... I think it would have been Sam's idea to do a solo mode for that, um, purely because he wanted to challenge himself to, to do it. Um, he he's not really a solo gamer, but he wanted just to, he loves a challenge, um, as you would have heard from his drum drum beats. Um, <laughs> so <laughs> he yeah, so he did that one, and then when I saw what he had created for Architects, that inspired me to create one for Raiders, 
which is why that was created after the game was already released for a few years. And now moving forward, we, we have that kind of mindset of if we can create a solo mode, we may as well. If it's just a few cards, maybe you're bored. Um, that's not really going to increase the price of the product too much, so we might as well do it. Um, but what we've discovered, which is quite interesting from a design point, is that if you can create a solo mode, even a, a real rough one, it really helps a lot with the early development and design of the game as well because you can play the game, you can play test it faster by yourself um, rather than playing two-handed, which can you know be a bit of a brain burn sometimes for some games. You can actually have a solo thing doing its thing while you're playing the game. And it's really good for like testing balance and that kind of stuff. So we actually did things for Viscounts. There's four different AIs in that game. I did games where I had all four AIs just facing off against each other, where I wouldn't play the game. I'd just trigger their, their effects um, and just one versus one AI. And that really gave a little insight into the balance of the game, which we could then um, bring back into the multiplayer, test it again multiplayer. Um, and it actually speeds up that playtesting process for us quite a bit. Yeah, I've heard you talk about uh, playing games by yourself, just watching them. And I thought that was the, one of the coolest ideas I've ever heard. Like, <laughs> you don't need a testing group anymore. Uh, yeah. But how, how, how do you go about uh, balancing the games? Because one of the things I've noticed about your games is I, I always feel like they're very balanced and, and very elegant. Do you just test them with people until they feel right? Or do you have some other sort of like technique, like spreadsheets and stuff like that? It's really both. Um... I now now I prefer to actually just do the prototype quickly and not worry too much about balance. Just kind of go off your gut, um, and you'll find straight away that things are unbalanced. Um, but the first, I'd say the first kind of half of our development stage now is all based on feel. Um, so we'll we'll play a game, and something that we've we've found that we often say is if we if, say if I win the game, I say did I deserve to win? Like did my strategy did it feel like I should have won based on how I did? Or um, do I feel, if I, if I lost, do I feel like I should have won? Or do I, did I actually, did I lose because I just sucked, you know? Um, but then once we kind of get that feel right, we will then jump into a spreadsheet and actually do the maths, figure it out. Um, and then with that information, adjust the numbers, go back. But then it comes back to feel again. You kind of jump between the two, making sure they kind of justify each other. Um, so the feel doesn't contradict the um, the actual maths behind it because you want it to be balanced, but it's almost more important for it to feel balanced quite often um, because there's nothing worse, worse than playing a game as a player and going, that feels unbalanced, that feels like that wasn't fair or whatever. So you've got to, you've got to kind of um, please both things in a way. Um, but for, I mean, the feel is obviously just um, a personal observation of the game, but for for the actual number crunching, the the best way to do that is to kind of find a baseline of what things are worth in the game. Um, and some games are easier to do. Um, so Raiders of the North Sea, um, in that game, there's some plunder in the game and gold is worth a point. So you know that gold is a point um, and there's an action in the game that says you can discard two cards to get a gold. So now, now you know that um, a card is half a point. So you can kind of work out the um, economy of the game, I guess, how much each thing is worth. Um, it gets trickier when there's games like Architects when you're, you've got to kind of figure out the the value of a turn, of an action. That gets really tricky um, because there's so many variables and things going on, and that's when you really have to rely heavily on feel. 
mm-hmm. more than the numbers. Yeah, I've, I've heard you talk about uh, putting restrictions on yourself when uh, when designing a game. What are some restrictions other than I would say probably box size would be one for you because you want to keep them all in the same <laughs> type of box. But other than that, are there any restrictions that you go into a game with? Not so much as a designer. Um, when it, it was just me designing for fun or designing for whatever I want to do, um, I don't usually have restrictions unless a restriction is somehow inspired at the game, I guess, if that makes sense. Um, I did a, I entered a game contest years ago where the, the challenge was to make it fit inside a little, um, like, tin. It was before the Mintworks games came out, but it was a tin like that kind of thing. So I had to design a game that fit in a tin. That was fun. Um, and it was the restriction that inspired it. But as a publisher, there's definitely things that I restrict myself with for at least for these medieval games, like like you said, the box size. Um, and just moving forward, I want to make sure that each, each of these trilogies has their own coin. Um, each of these series has their own worker, different shaped worker. So there's things like that where thinking forward to the next game, we'll be thinking, how, what will the worker be in this game? Will it be a resource? Will it be a worker placement game? Will it be something else? Um, so it's things like that. But that's more just about consistency of the brand um, rather than actually restricting ourselves. It's more about how can we add in that little thing that we want to have in there. But I think restrictions are a really great way to practice game design. If you tell yourself that you're going to make a game that only has 20 cards, that can be a really fun challenge to kind of, to try and figure out, can you do it? What about the opposite? Like, what about setting goals for games? Like, I've heard you say that you're inspired a lot by Age of Empires 2. And uh, <laughs> uh, what are what are some goals going into a game? And do they usually stay the same throughout the process? Like, do you, if, if you go into a game knowing that you kind of want to make some something in a particular way, uh, would would they would that thing stay the same? Uh, do you think in, in most cases when the game is finished? Uh, that's a tough one. I think there's there's two kind of trains of thought. One is that you should always know what you're trying to design because that helps balance out or at least filter out bad feedback. So if someone tells you that the game should be doing this, you know, oh no, but that's not that's not the game I'm trying to make. But also, I think there's another train of thought which is that games often end up kind of design themselves. You kind of know where it should go. Um, so you might have like this little nugget of a mechanism that kind of inspired the entire game, but then by the time you're finished developing it, that mechanism's not even in the game anymore. And I think that's fine as well. So it really, I think you need to be kind of a bit loose unless you're really committed to a concept, um, which I think those games are more the, the high thematic games when you, you know what this game is meant to be, how it's meant to feel, and then you can use that as a like a plumb line for ruling out certain things coming into the game. Um, but yeah, there's there's no right or wrong answer. I guess it's um it's just how you prefer to design. Yeah, I, I definitely feel uh, feel that way with with our last game. Uh, what we really tried to do, we were also inspired by one of our like childhood favorites, which is Heroes of Might and Magic. And uh, yeah. there's a I don't know if you have you played it. No, I haven't played it. I know of the name, though. Yeah, well, it, it's an older computer game, and it's very board game-like, but if it were to be made into a board game, there would be, like, there's a lot of stuff that the computer does for you. Like, uh, you know, you, you would need, like, maybe dice would be one way and stuff like that, but 
what what we wanted to focus on was just a very specific mechanic, which is there's like a grail quest in there where you find several places where they show you a concrete place where you need to get to. So from that mechanic, we figured out kind of how to, how to do that mechanic. And it stay, it, it's still in, in the game. But I found that, and it's like, the end goal is you find that place. And we, we find, found out a way to hide something in the game, which was cool with a modular board. Uh, but uh, I feel like, although that stayed in the game, it's it very much got like uh, overshadowed but by the other mechanics and stuff that we put yeah. in. So now it's like just just a part, a smaller part of the game, whilst it's something that we went in thinking that it was going to be a bi big thing. So yeah, let's, let's go to theme versus mechanics, the classic question. Uh, <laughs> uh, do you... Uh, I'm, I'm guessing you've heard the question a thousand times. I've heard it a few times, yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, I, I prefer to break it down a bit more. Um, I think with theme, I think people... Um, always think theme is always about immersion. So that's what, that's what they think of. Where for me, I think you need to separate like setting and immersion. Um, so I often, I often start now with the setting. So let's say I know I'm going to make a game that's in the West Kingdom of Old Frankia. Like that's the setting. I don't have the story yet. I don't know what you are as players or what you're doing in the game, but that's the setting at least. I kind of know there's going to be certain types of people in the game. There's going to be... You know, there could be wood and and, uh, and iron and gold and those kind of resources in the game, potentially. So I, I feel like you kind of have that first, and then I like to work on mechanisms next, um, usually. I mean, every game can be different, um, but that's often how um, how I do it. And how Sam, Sam's very much mechanism-driven as well, um, because at the end of the day, that's kind of what the game is, for us at least. Uh, we like Euro games, so mechanisms are kind of the strongest part of those things. Whereas a very immersive thematic style game is all about feel and all about like the, the stuff you get to collect or get to do or the, the adventure, the story. So with those ones, you, you I think you have to start with with this the the theme a bit more. Um, but there's there's yeah there's no right or wrong answer for those ones. They aren't you know, like you said that question comes up all the time. But for me, it's kind of setting then theme and then uh, sorry setting then mechanisms. And as I'm doing that. I'm thinking about the story, thinking about who are you as players, and then those kind of thoughts of the theme of the story help to inform the mechanisms as well. So um, things like the Valkyrie in Raiders, that was because I started thinking about the theme more and thought there should be something about dying gloriously in battle in a Viking game. So then I had to think about what mechanisms can I use within the game to enforce that theme, reinforce that theme. Yeah. I always feel that it's like a, a bouncing back between theme and, and mechanism and theme inspires mecha mechanisms and mechanisms inspire theme. Yeah. Uh, one thing I really like about your games is like, like you said that in your old games, you don't have that much story and there are that much space for the theme being up front. It's more mechanics. But one thing I really like about your games is how uh, you have a, a concept of, of where you want to go. Like you've already announced that you, you know that there's going to be two more trilogies coming out. I, I think that you maybe knew that early on because yesterday when I listened <laughs> to your album, I noticed that you used the same naming or a similar naming convention in uh, in the songs that you do in the games and the same <laughs> song count. Is there anything uh, specific to that <laughs> or is it just like an Easter egg that you decided to do? 
after actually the 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 album that you're talking about was um there's 12 songs um and they're all it was we were like a christian post hardcore band back then and we um we wanted to make each each title of each song like a description of god or like part of his character or something so you've got the architect you've got the the whisperer you've got the the we had things like uh the arsonist that kind of stuff so all these different names they're not like actual names for god but characteristics so yeah we've got things like the architect um there could be a game called defender who knows um but that was purely coincidence um that's yeah, it's quite funny though because it could be 12 uh, there would be 12 games as well and 12 songs but um, now I've, I've had I've had that joke with Sam but as well because he was in the band and the other guys saying like well we do games based on those but they're not connected in any way not connected yeah okay. yeah I was very curious about that when I, when <laughs> I heard it I it was like a conspiracy theory forming <laughs> <laughs> which I think is cool uh, yeah, yeah maybe I should just let it go and not say anything yeah. let people think <laughs> exactly yeah. yeah. <laughs> Uh, I've heard you talk about going into a project not only with a designer mind, but also with a developer and publisher mind. How would you say that mindset influences design decisions? And were there any mistakes you made early on when you didn't have a full understanding of the publishing process? Yeah, so I think you're, you're probably uh, thinking about Shelfie Stacker, I think, with that one. So I I, I watch a, um, a design um, live show, whatever, webcast type thing. Um, called Maple Syrup Show, which is a Canadian-based um, one. And they had a guy on there called Mike from Plan B Games, um, and he mentioned that for Azul, uh, the game they did, well, I think it's Next Move is the, is the brand they're under, um, they wanted to do games that had four four-letter titles, um, and they were like light abstract games. And then they announced Reef was coming out um, later. So I just thought that was kind of fun. Uh, and kind of cool. So we had a like a design meetup planned for that weekend, and I I had nothing to bring. So uh, I think on the Wednesday or Thursday, I just thought, why don't I try and make a real quick light abstract dice game that had, I could make up like a four the word. I just came up with fort. So it was about stacking dice, physically stacking dice to try and with some rules around the pips and stuff. Um, so that was again like a fun restrictive challenge to just design. Um, and the other game is completely twist into something else um, and with another publisher. But that was, yeah, that was quite interesting to try and do that. So I, I don't know if that's any other designers out there or who are looking for inspiration. That can be something that's kind of fun to do. Look at what designers are looking for, try and design it. They might not sign it in the end, but it's still, it's inspiration. So Yeah. Uh, I was I was actually asking more about, um, like, before you knew about the, about, uh, the specific problems of, of publishing, were there any like hardships that, like any any mistakes basically you made on uh, made before you knew like about manufacturing and stuff? So many mistakes, <laughs> so many. I've I've been doing it for a while, so I've made a lot of mistakes. That's how you learn, though. Um, I started out doing like my games were very much like hobby, um, homemade kind of prototype style games. For the first uh, six years or so that I was doing game design. So I would just assemble the games in my house, stuck, you know, put like stickers on boxes, fold the rule books myself, cut the cards myself, um, all that kind of stuff. And I do like 20 to 100 games of a, of a thing at a time. So it's very, very hobbyist. Um, so I, I learned a bit about publishing in that zone a little bit, not not about like mass production, but about how to 
kind of run as a publisher, I guess. Um, but then when, when Kickstarter came to New Zealand and I started doing games like that and then manufacturing in China, I had so many things I did wrong, um, like undercharging for my games, not understanding how, how shipping works, um, all that kind of fun stuff. Um, and it's, it's definitely a challenge um, for me in New Zealand because our New Zealand dollar is not very strong, so like the exchange rates can shift and suddenly – um, what I thought was going to cost this much is now way more or even sometimes way less, which is good. But, yeah, it's a lot of challenges um, that come around. That I'm still – I think every year that I do a Kickstarter, there's something else that I go, oh, I wish I'd known that. Mm-hmm. You know, so it's really a lot of um, unknowns. But, yeah, I don't know. There's, there's people out there who love to do every little bit of research possible. I'm not one of those people. So <laughs> I probably just stumble my way in and, and learn it as I go. Yeah, yeah there's probably better ways to do it than I do it. I, I think that's a good way to learn because you're gonna you're gonna definitely learn it for good. <laughs> in in a <laughs> yeah. lot of cases, when you make a mistake, you won't want to yeah. do it again. But when you when you were starting out, were there any publishers in New Zealand that you like talked to, or what was what was the industry like in New Zealand? Because I know it's a smaller market, just like uh, where I am in Bulgaria. It's pretty pretty small still. Yeah, I, had, I actually had looked at it before we jumped on. So Bulgaria's got 7 million. We've got 5 million. So similar size countries. Um, back when I started, I didn't even know there was a tabletop hobby community at all. I didn't know anything about um, modern board games. All my experience was playing Cluedo and Monopoly and Scrabble and stuff like that. So I just wanted to make a fun game. Um, it was a, like a roll-and-move family game. Um so I made that, and then I think a friend of mine invited me to a local convention. Um, at the time, I think it was like 100 people, um, and that was 12 years ago maybe. Um, and then through that, I suddenly discovered this whole community of board games, learned so much on the fly as I was still trying to design games. Um, but that that uh, convention now gets like 800 people, um, so it's our largest convention in New Zealand. But Back then, there were no publishers in New Zealand. Um, there, we have like a mainstream one that does puzzles and imports Scrabble and that kind of stuff, but they're not really a, a publisher in that sense that we know them. Um, but now there's, there's like myself, there's about four or five others that are fairly active in New Zealand. Um, but back then, there was no one else doing publishing at all. Um, and the, the idea of going overseas for me at that stage to try and meet publishers was just not even financially possible for me. So I think I, at that point, I think I was working at McDonald's. So mm. <laughs> I wasn't going to be flying over the States to try and meet publishers. Yeah, yeah. definitely. Uh, but have, have you ever pitched a game to a publisher? I have. Um, not intentionally. <laughs> <laughs> um, I think I'm, in the, I'm a very, like, lucky uh, not lucky, but like privileged position now where I have a bit of a reputation. Um, so a good reputation, I suppose. So I I think I sat down with um, guys from Z-Man at Gen Con maybe three or four years ago um, just because he wanted to catch up. Um, I had never done anything with them before. We, we, they talked about maybe signing Raiders at one point, um, but he wanted to do something. So he just said, what have you got to show me? And I, I had nothing, so... I just pulled out my phone and showed him this prototype of this little dice game that I had. Um, and his first reaction was like, whoa, that's a lot of dice. It's like a hundred and something dice. Mm-hmm. 
Um, but they, they, they were interested. So um, when I got back to New Zealand, I, I flipped them the rule book um, and they were pretty keen and sent them a prototype. And that ended up becoming Noctiluca, which they released, I think it was last year or year before. Um, so, but that's, yeah, that's a very uncommon story, I think, because for someone who's never published anything, that wouldn't really happen because you don't have the kind of um, that, that reputation that publishers like to have, I guess. Um, but no, I, I don't have really any real experience trying to pitch. Um, you know, I did, I pitched that, that Fort concept to a couple of publishers. Um, but yeah, that's, that's for me, that was like a fun project. I wasn't, it wasn't like my precious baby that I was trying to get signed. So it's a lot different. Yeah. Yeah. Well, here, like here in Bulgaria, or, uh, I, I feel like the past couple of years, board gaming has has become more and more popular. Like we've we've got probably like six or seven board game cafes now, and cool. uh, and there's bigger and bigger publishers who are doing mostly localization. So they're like translating games and stuff, which is which is quite cool. But but I haven't really really pitched yet either, and that's that's why I was curious because uh, when we went into it, we also didn't really know how it worked at all. We we had been working on a game, but uh, and we saw online a design contest, so we decided to go in, and then we had uh, a publisher from there uh, pitch to us, which was which was cool, but we didn't know uh, about how the the process worked. Mm. Uh, well, yeah, it's usually just that you'll, you know, in the perfect setting, you might go to a convention and take like three or four prototypes with you and get like half an hour to show them what you've got. Um, and then if they're interested, they will then get back to you about it. If it's amazing, they might sign up on the spot, but I think that's quite rare. Um, they will usually want to see a rule, the rules. They want to get sent the prototype. Um, but yeah, it's, I think every publisher is different. That's the other thing to know is that one publisher might do it this way, but then another one do it completely differently. Um, so it's because I think we're as a as a community or as a industry we're still quite young and we're still figuring it all out. So there's no real rules around this kind of stuff. It's just um, everyone's just trying to do their best in a way. So yeah, I think the, the, the cool thing for me I find because um, I've been to Essen twice now and I've had a few serious kind of meetings I guess, um, and it can be quite uh, unnerving for like a, a new designer especially or someone who's not comfortable in that space. It just it made me laugh because I had to think about the fact that these guys were wearing their suits and everything. But at the end of the day, they're all just board gamers that love playing games. They're all just nerds, you know, like geeks. So it's kind of quite a, a really fun community to be a part of because we all just love playing games. Um, so I think if you keep that in mind, that um, these are just gamers who love playing games, then it makes it a bit easier, not so scary to try and pitch to these publishers. Yeah. Has the the situation we're in now affected you any, in any ways as a publisher or anything? Or how, how is it down in New Zealand, actually? I, I don't know. Is there a, like, quarantine, stuff like that? Yeah, we, um, our government's done really well. Um, we went into lockdown six weeks ago, um, which meant that basically everything shut down. Um, we shut the borders. The borders are still closed. Um, and then... Two weeks ago, we lit a, they went from level four down to level three, which meant that restaurants could reopen, that kind of stuff. And then tomorrow we go to level two, which means we can now start traveling again. Um, so tomorrow I'm going over to Sam's place to play testing games. Um, but we've only had, I think it's 21 deaths. And I think we've had like 94% recovered now. So 
Um, it's pretty pretty good job they've done in New Zealand. Um, but for me as a company, it affected me a little bit, but I don't think it's affected me like it has other people. Um, I, it, if it had been like three months earlier, it would have been horrible for me because we were preparing for Kickstarters and that kind of stuff. But um, it's been quite fortunate for us that and this has all happened at a point where we we can afford to take six weeks off, um, which, you know, which is a blessing because most people are been very badly affected by this with their jobs and stuff. So um, I don't know how it's going to affect other publishers, um, but I think the thing with publishing is it's like a very long process. You know, it can take like nine nine months to two years to, de- to fully develop a game. So these publishers aren't like they, they don't really stop because they, they know that they're going to do something in like a year's time. So um, I don't think it's going to have a huge effect on publishing. If anything, there'll be more games designed because everyone's stuck at home with nothing to do. So we'll find out, I guess. Do you ever feel imposter syndrome because you've gotten a lot of popularity? And is, is that something that that you felt? Yeah, <laughs> I think that's just a thing for all creative people. Um, as you, <coughs> excuse me, you, you constantly second guess your own abilities. Um, although I do think after 10 or so years, it's has gotten better. Um, you simply start to trust yourself and think, oh, I can actually make games, you know, <laughs> even might, might have taken me 10 years to figure it out. But yeah, the first, my first few games, I was always thinking, can I make one more? Can I wait, make one more? Um, am I actually good at doing this? You know, that kind of thing. At one point, what point do you feel like you get, got the confidence that you know that you're gonna be able to, you know, make the next one? <laughs> I think honestly, it was probably like it was probably six to eight years. I think for me, which isn't very um, promising for other people to hear, but um, I think it really comes down to like having other people affirm you, other designers or the general public really like a game. Um, but yeah, it's definitely. I think that that challenge of like, can I do one more? That took a long time for me to kind of go away. And now I just know that I can, I guess. Um, and also having Sam working by my side, it's like, it's a lot easier to not carry that weight myself as well. So I know that together we will make a game, you know, it's, it's just, um, it takes that, that pressure off a bit for me as well. What's it like working with your brother now who's doing the art for, uh, Raiders of Scythia, right? Yeah, it's really good. Um, I've I've always loved Sam's artwork. He's done a lot of tattoos that I've got on my arm. Um, he he actually did a lot of the the original card games I used to do but way back when I started out. Um, he used to do the art just for free because he's my brother. Mm-hmm. Um, and then I think when I went to do the to do shipwrights, and I found um, Micho to do that stuff. Um, that just took off. So I just kind of focused on on keeping the same artwork. Um, and then it worked, it kind of worked out, um, a year and a half ago with my brother's job that, um, I was like, well, you could probably end up doing this game for me or do, do this Acadians game. Um, so he, he focused heavily on that. And then I went on to the Raiders of Scythia and now he's got another two projects lined up for me as well for next year. So it's really fun because like, he's my big brother and, you know, super creative and it's just fun to like do what you love with people you actually like, you know? Yeah. Um, yeah. Rather than just complete strangers or, you know, it's just, it's just fun to be able to, to do what we do um, with, with both the two Sams that I work with. Yeah. It's something I, I really, really like about your, 
I'm, I'm putting air quotes like business model <laughs> is that you, you, you're able to do it with your brother and a good friend of yours. So and that's not something that's that I feel is, is just really awesome, you know, and like because I'm also in a similar situation working with with my brother now on games. I feel like that's helped us bond a lot because we used to bond over yeah. like over games as kids. And then, you know, growing up, uh, when you've got different careers and stuff and education and you, it, that can break that bond to a certain level. And then when we got into board gaming together, it's, it's just cool to share a hobby. But th then sharing a similar creative idea, I feel is it's for me personally, it's just amazing. Yeah, rather than kind of your family drifting apart as you grow older, which often happens. So, mm -hmm. no, nah, it's, it's really good because he's, he's my only my only sibling as well. So it's great to have my brother involved in what I love doing. So you said like you have already have two other projects with him in mind. Do, do you have several games that you work on at a time or do you, do you only focus on one project for a while? Um, we, we work on quite a few at the same time. They're usually in different stages. Um, so obviously... Um, Viscounts and Tome Saga and Razor Scythia, those are now just going into production. Um, so they'll get they'll get um, released around the same time towards the end of the year. Um, the other things that we have in the schedule now, Hadrian's Wall is a game that designed by another New Zealand-based designer um, that my brother's almost finished the artwork for now. Um, that's likely going to be like a January-February release. Um, so that one's in the stage now where it's pretty much designed. Um, the artwork is done. We just need to play test it and blind play test it a lot just to make sure everything feels right and the balances are there. Um, so that's kind of like in the, the later stages. Um, the other game that he'll be working on soon is the second game in the Circadians world, which Sam's co-designing with a guy in Italy, um, a friend of his, who's actually a Kiwi, but living in Italy. Um, so that one is very much... Game design's probably pretty much done. They're just doing a lot of development. And now we're starting to look at, like, the pre-art stage. So I, I usually get it. I'll do my touches on it, make sure that the the direction of the art's going to be good, that the layouts of the boards are good, graphic design, interface kind of stuff, before I pass it on to my brother. Um, so that's in that stage. And then Sam and I are now currently working on expansions for more West Kingdom stuff which is all kind of bundled together. We're doing all three of them at once, um, which should all be stuff for next year. Um, so that's like not even in the, that's the very early design stages. So it's kind of good having stuff in different different spaces because it's like a different part of your brain that's kind of focusing. So you can jump between them a lot easier rather than having like six games in the design phase at once, um, which for me would be a nightmare. So, yeah. What about working with uh, the Micho? Uh, at one point do you send him what you're planning and stuff like that? So I will only send him stuff once I know that it's final. Um, so, for example, for the expansions that we're working on for West Kingdom stuff, I know the titles of two of those, and I, we definitely know that the theme and the story is kind of locked in. Most of the mechanisms are already locked in as well. So I've sent him the, con the, um, the job for the two box covers and for some of the board extensions that we're doing, but nothing else because I don't know it's final. So until something's absolutely finalized, I won't send them anything to do because otherwise that's just money I'm spending that I don't need to be spending. Um, otherwise he has to redo things and that's wasting his time as well. So it's a bit different when, when it's working with, with someone like him 
where it's like very much a contract, like here's the work and I pay him for the work. Whereas with my brother, um, it's a bit different because we can kind of, we can concept build a bit earlier together. Um, you know, it's not, we're not committing to a, a full piece straight away, but it's usually a, a good rule as a publisher to don't commission artwork until you know that you're going to use it, I guess. Um, quite often, like in the in the West Kingdom and North Sea stuff, I would commission the character art quite early because I knew I was going to have characters in the game. So, um, And often I would end up changing their names to suit different um, cards differently and that kind of stuff. So, yeah, uh, it's just it's nice having the art early. Like I love playing testing with the artwork, but often it can be risky. So if you decide to do this whole elaborate board and then realize, actually, we don't want a board. We want to do cards instead or something. Then you've just wasted all that money and all, all that work on the artwork. So. Yeah, I've got to com- compliment uh, Vimicho because we're huge fans. And I think I think he definitely deserves the, the fan base that he has because his art is really good. In fact, the I only <clears throat> I only recently found out about about your games or uh, tried them out for the first time when I was in when I was in Essen this year. Uh, huh. My brother had a booth there, actually, which we shared with uh, our Misho, <laughs> who's <laughs> who I had on the podcast last time. And my uh, we were very much on budget. We didn't know we were going to Essen until two weeks before that because we uh-huh. had gone to a different convention in Bulgaria. And he told us he has space in his booth because he only had a card game, like a small game. He's like, I don't need any more uh, space. So you guys can come along. And so we did, but we were very much on budget. And towards the end, my brother's like, we have to get a game. And and I'm like, <laughs> yeah, but, you know, we haven't really researched stuff. And um, and he, he saw Architects and he's like, I really want that game. <laughs> just just <laughs> based on, and we, we had heard the name, of course, but just based on the artwork and yeah. the fact that it says Architect because he's an architect and uh, he oh, found nice. some, some similarities uh, to that. <laughs> Uh, at the end, I did manage to dissuade him, which <laughs> I feel kind of bad about. Sorry about that. Uh, but I, I did buy it for him uh, for his birthday. And that's how nice. we, we, we fell in love with, with your game. Because, you know, I, we, I really researched the games that we buy before, before we do. Because we uh, have a small collection and I always want it to be a good game. But after I watched a few videos, I knew that it's a game that we'd enjoy <laughs> cool. a lot. Yeah. Where do you get your inspiration for theme? Um, so the like I, I think you've already mentioned it, the Age of Empires was a huge game that I used to love playing. I still play it. Sam still plays heaps too. Um, so I, I've always loved the medieval setting, um, all that that kind of you know the age of like swords and bows and arrows and that kind of stuff. So if I was playing with Lego as a kid, it would be like the Robin Hood sets or the pirates or or the knights and, and that kind of stuff. I just I just like that setting. I think because for me it makes sense, um, whereas um, as much as I love sci-fi movies and sci-fi TV, when it comes to board games, I, I don't know what things are in sci-fi. I don't know what like a, a blaster rifle does or like a, you know, different weird names, different weapons. Um, so I, I think I naturally draw myself into that kind of medieval fantasy setting more. Um, but so the inspiration for me is more just probably the stuff of, Games I've played in the past, um, either digital games or board games, really. I don't get a lot of inspiration from other other mediums, I don't think. I watch a lot of TV, but it's usually more sci-fi and crime shows and stuff. Well, one thing I feel like you've really contributed to board games is worker placement and lots of different ways. Or you've, I feel like you've introduced a lot of different things to worker placement. 
Is it something that you just really liked in the beginning? Because I've, I've also heard you say <laughs> that uh, you, you, you don't feel some of your games as much as worker placement. Uh, yeah, tell me about, about why you chose that genre or mechanic. Yeah, I think I think the fact that Raiders got a lot of attention and then Architects did, I think that's why people naturally think that I've like set out to make worker placement games, but I, that's never been something I've tried to do. Um, I think Raiders was probably my second attempt at a worker placement. Um, it's my, it my first attempt at like a, what I think would probably be like a true worker placement, even though it turned out not to be a true worker placement. Um, but I, when I first started designing it, I was very much thinking like the whole, you've got like four workers and you place them out and you draw them back. Um, but then, I don't know, part of me doesn't want to just create a game that's already been made before. So I think as I had these concepts for this game kind of in uh, sort of developing, I naturally went to that mechanism space and thought, how can I make this game different? And spent a few months just trying to think over ideas and finally had the idea for the place a worker, pick up a worker thing. And then obviously Architects was Sam McDonald's idea. So it's never something we've really set out to do, I guess. Um, it's funny hearing people call Paladins a worker placement because in my mind it doesn't fit that mm. that thing at all. Either you are, yes, you are placing down workers. Um, they may as well be discs or something. Um, it's I think that one's like a worker drafting action selection game. Um, so it's funny, we, we're sort of joking about how people are going to naturally start calling Viscounts a worker placement just because you put workers in the castle, but no, it's, just, it's just something that's kind of stuck, I think. But, um, it's, uh, but I do really enjoy the genre. It's, um, I think it's just a great way of having action selection with some interaction. It's the, the blocking of spaces, the, the getting stuff before someone else. Um, it just It's just a fun mechanism. I think it's like, you know how um, when you're growing up and you're playing very basic family games, Usually on your turn, you get past the dice and you roll the dice. And it's just very simple and you can understand that as a kid. I think worker placement has that same kind of thing where it's so simple to know that on your turn you put down a worker. Um, has that same simplicity to the action taking. So I think that's why it's so popular. It's, it's simple, but yet there's a big space for, like, depth if you want to take it there. Like, you know, if you've played played any, like, uh, Vitale Studio games or something where it's, like, insane amount of depth and decision-making, but all you're doing is taking one action or something um there's a lot of a lot of stuff you can do within that genre which is probably why we've seen so many worker placement games yeah i feel like you've definitely added to the genre especially with with sam's idea and architects i think that's that's one of my favorite mechanics and i haven't i haven't seen it in other games but there, there probably are some now where <laughs> they're being developed yeah, yeah. now <laughs> what are some worker placement games that you've played or that that you've played before you or where's some that you like uh some like the, one, the ones i first started playing when i got into the hobby were like stone age um uh pillars of the earth lords of Waterdeep. um the ones i've really started to enjoy um more recently um look at my shelf for a second village is really good even though it's kind of like reverse work placement you're taking things away lewis and clark I think it's a great game. It's a racing game rather than a victory point game, um, but it uses worker placement and also slight deck building. Um, so I think the games that I that I really like in the genre are usually like a a kind of hybrid of two mechanisms, so like worker placement and something else, rather than just a straight worker placement game. Um, I think that's that's just I enjoy that as a designer, and it makes makes for fun decisions in the game as well. 
Um, another one that I really enjoyed early on was um, called Asara, which is a it's worker placement, but you're using cards as your workers and the, the color of the workers um, affect other players and where they can place their cards, um, which is just basically, again, it's like worker placement with a twist. Um, I think what's the other one that stood out to me? I know I'm missing it. Underwater Cities. That's the big one. Mm-hmm. So Underwater Cities is, is, again, it's worker placement, but uses cards quite heavily. Yeah. Yeah, I felt like uh, I haven't gotten a chance to play Paladins yet, but from my, what I watched in uh, like how to play videos, I felt like there was uh, it, what it reminded me of was Scythe, the way that you get to upgrade stuff on your board and things getting uh, stronger as 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 you, as you go along. Uh, but again, that's just from <laughs> yeah. A few I think a lot of that's um, like Sam loves Terra Mystica, mm-hmm. which is probably what inspired a lot of Scythe as well. Yeah. The idea of having like a player board that you you take something off, you reveal something, and then you cover something. Um, that's just it's just a fun mechanism, I think. Um, and it really it kind of gives that feeling of like those old tech tech of games like Age of Empires, where you're like kind of upgrading and, and seeing things develop in front of you, and also out in the the wider area. Yeah. What advice would you give yourself after you know all of your experience if if you were to be starting out again? Gosh. Um, I don't know. It's, it's. I mean, maybe not to publish everything I design. <laughs> when I first started out, I was just basically like, I would take a game from start to finish every single time. Um, but I mean, I learned a lot doing that. So maybe it's maybe I would still do that. Um, I think the best advice is usually just, is really to play lots of games because you learn so much just by seeing what other people do, learning from from what they've they've created and what they've learned in the experience. Um, yeah. I don't know. There's, I mean, there's lots of things I've I've done wrong along the way, um, and things in like, and some of my older games that I would change now with what I know. But I mean, you can't change the past. So yeah. <laughs> I think I, I, that's why I love just making the next game. Uh, I don't like sitting on one game for too long. Um, we always try and keep the game alive with expansions and, and doing other content for it. But really, I just want to you know keep making the next game. Uh, do you keep a designer diary? Uh, no, not really. Um, I have a notebook that I take with me to play tests, but that's usually just to, to um, like to jot down any feedback or things to change when I get home. Um, I wrote some design diaries for one of my rec- my upcoming games, but that was all kind of written after the fact. Um, I, I I'm terrible with memory, so I always forget how, how things happen, how they developed and stuff. But no, I, I haven't I haven't gotten the habit of doing design di- design designer diaries. Um, I think because for me, I'm like the anti-hoarder. I hate having lots of stuff, despite having a collection of board games. But I hate like you know old things that I don't need anymore, and, and notepads filled with notes and that kind of stuff. So it's just not me. But I can definitely see the value in it um, for like reflecting back on what you did and how things changed. Mm. Well, one thing I, I do a lot, and I, I talked about this with another guest, is Oh, uh, when I have an idea, I first of all, I usually get my ideas for board games late at night <laughs> and it leads to insomnia a lot of times, but it also leads to sometimes like good ideas. And what I would do is I'd play the game in my head a bunch of times just at night. And do, do you have any sort of like phase like that? Do, do you imagine playing your games or do you just leave it for when the prototype is on the table? 
No, we definitely do that. We do that for like two months usually. Mm. So we just we just call it like theory crafting. Like Sam and I will just be dreaming up ideas and then in the morning we'll shoot them with each other, spitball them a bit, and then we'll let them sit. And then a week later he might go, hey, I was thinking about that idea you had. And I had, a, I was, you know, last night I was thinking about this and that. And I mean, I, even this morning I had an idea because I didn't sleep much last night. Had an idea for like a way of managing resources in, in some game, just a little mechanism with dice. Um, so then just fire that to Sam this morning. So it's it's written down on my Facebook Messenger at least. Um, yeah, but there's we do that a lot. Once we do actually have that kind of concept, I think Sam and I are both in that why that same way where we try and play the game in our heads. Um, and I think the reason we do that is to eliminate um, like issues that you will notice straight away when you test it anyway. Um, so yeah, I think it's just that's just how we like to do it. We, we usually will spitball ideas for like a month or two before we even have a prototype ready. Um, so that's just how we like to do it, though. Yeah, it's it's something that we we definitely do it exactly the, the same way with my brother. It's uh, I, I send him ideas all the time and he sends me ideas and then we find ways to actually do it. And then when we, when we get to the prototyping phase, we see which ones stick and which ones don't. But uh, yeah. I think you can get a lot out of the way without even needing a, but before you actually need a prototype, when you you know you're still getting the concept of of the game and how it's going to work. What about you? How do you go around playtesting, blind testing? Uh, what kinds of groups do you go to? Yeah, so Sam and I will playtest just us for a long time. Um, probably, probably it depends on the game, of course, how it develops. But probably a good two to three months, we'll just play it two player. Um, and also solo if we've developed the solo mode for it. Um, and then we even would probably try and play it four player with us playing two two players each um, before we show people just to see how it feels and how, how things interact. Um, but then once we know we've kind of got it to a good space, we will take it to just close friends, um, like just invite them around for the night and play it twice or something. Um, and then there's usually a ton of, like things to change after that first play test just because there's all these things we didn't consider or didn't see coming with more players added at the time, like the time of the game or just, just how things interact, how cards might run out of decks, that kind of stuff. Um, so then we usually would then jump back into two player again and tweak it and make sure it still looks good in two player, then do another night, show everyone else. Um, and then, yeah, we, we do mainly two player and then we do, those kind of like sporadic kind of three and four player games. And then once we know that we need to really focus a lot on balance and the final testing, we will do like entire days of playing the game like four or five times back to back with the same people um, and play the game over and over again. Um, and we'll do that probably two or three times for a game. Um, and then obviously go back into two play quite a bit at that stage as well. Um, it's not until we really know we've got the game pretty much finalized that we'll go into blind playtesting um, purely because in my mind, blind playtesting is actually only to test your rule book. That's what it should be for. Um, it's all about making sure that people can learn your game. Um, so that for us, that's quite a small, small space. Uh, have you gotten into online board gaming, which seems to be quite popular nowadays? Um, yeah, a little bit. So because with um, the second Circadians game that Sam's doing, because his co-designer is living in Italy, um, they managed to build the whole thing on Tabletopia. Um, and that's like a two to five player area control game. 
So they've been doing a lot of testing um, with people in Italy and in New Zealand. Um, I've done it probably three or four times with them now. Um, and they've even done like, I think Sam did a few, a few sessions in New Zealand with other designers from around New Zealand, just invite them into the group to play test the game. Um, so, I mean, I've never done that for other stuff, but it's been really good for them, especially at this point where everyone's kind of stuck at home. Um, and I think it, it can be faster as well in a way because it's a lot easier to organize people to, to jump on for a couple of hours rather than make a whole day of it. Mm-hmm. Um, but I don't know. I think, yeah, it's, it depends on the people, I think, because it can be a challenge to not just play test but also know how to use those systems. It can throw a lot of people off. But, yeah, and you, can, you don't get to see the reactions and stuff like that. You can't read their body language as, as you would in a normal play test. Um, but yeah, I think it's still a good tool to use if you if you need, if you want to use it though. Yeah, I, I actually went into I, I only got uh, Tabletop Simulator last month. Yeah. At first, I was super excited. I'm like, I can uh, test the game all day with with different player <laughs> counts, different people. But it turned out I now I feel like I am missing that interaction and. Now that I can do it whenever I want, I, I find that I actually prefer doing it by myself a lot of the time. Uh, and I, I, I don't yeah. know, I, I feel like it's it's uh, sometimes better for me at least to, to leave playtesting with other people to a bit l- later. Anything that you, you want to like tell people about, about where they can find out more about your games or anything that you want people to know? Um, so if you want to like follow us, the best place is probably Facebook. Um, but if you go to garfield.com, that's our, our website. We've got, I think it's Garfield Games, or at Garfield Games for Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Um, but usually Facebook's the best place because um, I'm not much of an Instagram user. Um, but yeah, we've got yeah, we've got Vicounts, we've got Razor Scythia coming out later this year. Also keep an eye out for um, Shelfie Stacker with Arcus Games. That's coming to Kickstarter in June. I think it's June 12th. Um, that's like a little dice abstract card game that I designed for them. So it's a lot of fun. It's all about trying to fit your new board games into your shelf. So it's quite a meta kind of game, but very funny, very light and comical. Um, so check that one out on Kickstarter next month as well. Well, thanks a lot, Chum. <laughs> Thank you.